who would be in Christ. And they would be in Christ to appear before you in Him holy and blameless, having received redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sin, all of our trespasses, having in Christ, by the Spirit, life from the dead. And we thank you that you have provided this for us. And yet, what we know of that now is but in part. The full glory is yet to come. When you, O Christ, return in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels to establish your kingdom, what a day of rejoicing that will be when we see you no longer in bodies of weakness and with the principle of sin remaining in them, but spiritual bodies, bodies fit for your glory and your presence forever. Keep our eyes intent to look on these things, to think on these things, to anticipate these things that we might present to you heart of wisdom, hearts of wisdom. And so to that end, Lord, we ask even that you would take this portion of your word that we'll look at this morning and encourage our hearts and set them on the things that are right and true, that we might live lives that are productive in this world. And to that end, we pray in the matchless name of him who died and rose for us, who now intercedes for us, who is returning for us, the name of the Lord Jesus, amen. Well, open up your Bibles, if you will, to Revelation chapter 3. Revelation chapter 3, as we come back to this passage in verses 7 through 13, and particularly the message of the risen Christ, who is now, as we just sang, at the right hand of the Father, and speaking to the churches, to speaking to the churches, seven select churches throughout Asia Minor. Although each message is tailored specifically to the church that he is addressing, it says at the end, listen to what the Spirit says to the church is, plural. It is a message for that church. It is a message to be paid attention to and to be heeded by all of the churches, not only of that day, but throughout the ages. And so it is with Philadelphia. Now, it's been a couple of weeks since we have uh, looked at this church. We had uh, Pastor Harrison uh, come last week, which was really good, wasn't it? We really appreciated his message and his ministry. But we come back now to the church of Philadelphia. And Philadelphia, as you know, is one of the two churches out of the seven that there is no word of rebuke to. It's only a word of commendation. And so to this church at Philadelphia, Christ is commending them for their faithfulness. They are persecuted by the Jews, just like the church at Smyrna. And yet, in the midst of their persecution, they are faithful to Christ. They are faithful to the gospel. And he acknowledges that. And we have titled this Philadelphia as the church of the open door because that is in fact what Christ promises to them because of their faithfulness, that he will set before them an open door, an open door that we have taken as an open door of opportunity. Him who is sovereign over salvation, him who is sovereign over his kingdom, is sovereign over giving the opportunity to this church to continue their witness to Christ. It is a privilege of them to suffer, it is a privilege of them to bear the name of Christ. And we ended last time at verse 9, and, we, and let me just read to you actually verse 9, and then we'll, or actually I'm going to read to you verses uh, 7 through 9, and then we'll consider this a bit closely. He says, And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, He who is holy, he who is true, he who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one will open, opens, says this, I know your deeds, behold... I have put before you an open door which no one can shut because you have a little power and have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will cause those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not but lie. I will make them come and bow down at your feet and make them know 
that I have loved you. And we notice one of the key ideas in verse 9 is this, that things aren't always as they appear. Things aren't always what they seem to the watching world. In fact, they're quite different, even the opposite. The highest example of that would be, of course, the person of Christ himself. He came humble. We did not esteem him as someone to be honored. The world didn't, didn't esteem him as someone to have all the glory of men that would attract the attention of men. He was lowly. He was, in fact, a man who came to his nation and was rejected by them. He was, in fact, God incarnate who came to his covenant people and was rejected by them. He was a man despised by the world. He was one whom they saw merely as a defeated teacher of Israel. He was hung shamefully, naked, bruised, broken, and bloody on a cross before all of the Roman world. He was mocked by his own people who even mocked him saying, Come down from that cross if you were favored of God. And he seemed as one who was a defeated leader of a movement. But that is not how things were. He was, in fact, at that time, fulfilling the eternal purpose of God as the eternal Son of God in flesh and defeating sin, defeating Satan, fulfilling the purposes of God for this world, preparing for himself and laying the foundation for himself of a people who would be his forever, who would reign with him in a new heavens and a new earth for his glory forever. It was not as it seemed. And so it is with Christ's people. And in fact, God does that on purpose. With his people, Paul said, he chose not the noble things of the world, not the mighty things of the world, not the things that receive the accolades of the world and the people who receive accolades from the world, generally speaking, but the weak things, the despised things, those things that are not. God chose them so that all the more his glory might shine through them in his work of redemption and because it is a rebuke on human pride. And so now the church lives and has through its history While having times where it sought the world's glory and seemed to gain some of it, we can think particularly of the Middle Ages or even that time after Constantine of the rise of the church where it blended political power and spiritual power supposedly. But that was the false representation of what the church was at that time. But no, the reality is is that the true church, even at that time, was persecuted. You can think of the Inquisition in other times. Those who stood up for the truth of the gospel and the truth of the word were imprisoned. They were beaten. They were killed, murdered, separated from their families, and so forth. And so it has always been that the true church is the recipient primarily of the hostility of the world and of the rejection of the world and in that sense is despised by the world and we see that even in our own nation as our nation becomes more and more secular those who hold faithfully to the word of God and to the testimony of Christ are more and more and more despised and have less and less power in the world and so it is but that's not how things are the way things are is that those who belong to Christ are promised that they will reign with Christ The way things are that that crucified Jewish Messiah back in the first century is in fact the Lord of heaven and earth, the creator of all things and who will rule and reign on his throne on this earth and who will make all things new. That's the reality of it. And that is in part what he is encouraging this church with here in Philadelphia and therefore the church throughout the ages. 
He says again in verse 9, Behold, I will cause those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, but lie, I will make them come and bow down at your feet and know that I have loved you. In other words, those who claim to be the people of God, those who claim to be the recipients of God's blessing, will in fact, and who are in fact right now, persecuting you, seemingly coming from a place of strength towards those who are weak, will know that that is not the true situation and they themselves will come and acknowledge that Christ has loved those who are now being persecuted. It's a reversal of the way that things seem. But as we come to this passage, we realized a couple of weeks ago that how do we understand, in order to understand the promise of Christ, we have to make some clear distinctions. So, for example, in Christ saying that these are from the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews or not, they lie. In other words, they're, they're saying a lie. They're not consciously lying. They think they are the people of God, but they are lying because, in fact, they're claiming something that's not true. Is he promising to them that they will, or to this church at Philadelphia, that these Jews are going to come and worship along with these Gentiles? Are they a gift from Christ to this church who has been a faithful witness? Or is he promising that these are going to come as defeated enemies and bow their knee before those who are truly the people of God? And as we spent a little bit of time looking at the first option there last week... Uh, one of the primary issues uh, with seeing this as those who will, Jews, who will come and bow down before the Gentiles or give preeminence to the Gentiles who are believing or to the church is that it requires that there is a reversal of the promise that was anticipated to the nation of Israel. Now, let me just remind you of what I mean by that. And we're going to consider this uh, a bit more. In Isaiah 45, this is the background... Uh, for those who hold that position. In Isaiah 45, don't turn there, let me just read them to you. We have promises such as this to the nation of Israel. Uh, Thus says the Lord, the products of Egypt and the merchandise of Cush and the Sabaeans, uh, men of stature, will come over to you and be yours and they will walk behind you. They will come over in chains and will bow down to you. They will make supplication to you. Surely God is with you and there is none else, no other God. In chapter 49, verse 13, the prophet prom- God promises through the prophet this, Shout for joy, O heavens, and rejoice, O earth. Break forth into joyful shout- shouting, uh, O mountains. For the Lord has comforted his people and will have compassion on his afflicted. And later he says in verse 23, Kings will be your guardians and their princes your nurses. They will bow down to you with their faces to the earth and lick the dust of your feet. And you will know that I am the Lord Those who hopefully wait for me will not be put to shame. And there are other passages like that. So some say, well, what's happening here is this, is that God is promising to the church at Philadelphia that those promises that the Jews took to themselves as having a preeminent position in the future is in fact now reversed. And the irony of it and the impact of it is is that now it is the Gentiles who are receiving from the Jews or from Israel this kind of lowered position. Well, the problem with that, as we noted, one, is why that's a more difficult interpretation, is because one, it reverses the very meaning of the passage in the Old Testament. It makes what God said to the Jews not what God said to the Jews, but something different, in fact, even the opposite. And so that's a very difficult position to hold. 
Also, it fails to understand that the wrong interpretation of that passage by unbelieving Jews does not change the purpose of the prophet through Isaiah in in that that is believing Israel, a time when Israel would know the Lord that he is talking about. He's not talking about unbelieving Jews, but he's talking about believing Jews. Well, then that introduces even yet another question that we began last week and we'll fill out more this week and then come back to this passage. And that is this. How then are we to understand the relationship of the nation of Israel, ethnic Israel, ethnic Jews, to the church and to God's future plans, to God's eschatological purposes, to what God is going to do at the end? Is God finished with Israel? Is Israel no longer a part of his plan? Is that now all fulfilled in the church? Is the church now the fulfillment of all of these promises that take on a different flavor than what was intended by the prophets, but now there's just something different, something even better? Is that what is meant? Well, we have to be clear on that before we can really begin to think through the intention of the Lord here with these words. And so this is a very important issue, a very important issue. And in order to untangle it a little bit, I want to just take some time this morning, most of our time this morning, and go back to another passage that will help us to think through these things, namely Romans chapter 11. So if you want to turn to it, Romans chapter 11, it's going to take up our time here for a little bit. And again, we're asking this question. So there's a lot here. This isn't a full exposition of Romans 9 through 11 or Romans 11. This is looking at it broadly. We're trying to get a big picture. We're trying to answer this one very specific question. Namely, what is the relationship of the church to the nation of Israel? Or we could say something like this. Does the church fulfill the promises that were made to the nation of Israel in the Old Testament so that now those are no longer to be seen specific to the Jewish nation, but rather are to Jew and Gentile together equally for the future? Well, Paul answers that question specifically. But before we get to Romans 11, let me just very, very briefly in, in the you know, 100,000 foot flyover, not the 30,000 foot, this is kind of like in the atmosphere, you know, circling around the earth, not up in the sky. But let me just give you the big idea here then of Romans chapter 9 and Romans chapter 10. After Paul has already just stated this glory of this coming creation, this glory of God's purposes in redeeming his people, his church, Jew and Gentile together... He introduces in chapters 9 through 11 a discussion to say, well, now how are we to understand all of this in relation to the Jewish nation and the ethnic Jewish nation who has received all of these promises of God? How are we to understand that? And he begins by expressing his heart in verse 2 of chapter 9 that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. He says, I wish that I myself could be separated from Christ because of my kinsmen according to the flesh. And then he identifies the privileged position of his kinsmen, he himself, who are Israelites, verse 4, to whom belong the adoption of sons and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the temple and service and the promises, whose are the fathers and from whom is the Christ according to the flesh, who is over all... And God blessed forever. Amen. 
In other words, this is my people. This is my people who has a privileged position. They have received such gifts from God, such promises from God. But in fact, as was typical throughout their history, they did not respond rightly as a whole to these promises, but instead either rebelled or rejected God's purposes or tried to, as they were in this day of Paul writing this letter, establishing their own kind of righteousness before God and rejecting His righteousness. And in the midst of all that, he shows that this is the sovereign purpose of God. God is the one who hardens and God is the one who saves. Just as God said that not all Israel, not everybody who is ethnically Israel, are in fact the true Israel. Verse 6, but it is not as though the word of God has failed. For they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. In other words, not all Israel encompasses and knows and experiences the reality of what Israel was meant to be as a covenant nation. Those who had received the covenant of redemption. In the sense that by redeeming them, God established his covenant with them. He says that's not the case. And here he's confronting specifically the pride of the Jews that said, look, we're fine, we're in God's purposes because we are descendants from Abraham. And as Jesus did through the gospel and the rest of the New Testament, it's confronted and saying, no, that's not enough. That's not enough. That doesn't mean you're a true descendant of Abraham. Again, just as a footnote, remember what Jesus said to the leaders of the nation. If, if, if you were truly of your father Abraham, then you would love me. You wouldn't be trying to kill me. That's the idea here. And so he's saying, you're not really of Abraham. You might be of Jewish descent. You might be of the identity with the ethnic nation as a whole. But you are not really God's people. You're not really God's people. And so that's essentially what he's saying here. And so he's saying throughout the whole history of God revealing his purposes through the nation of Israel, God is the one who makes the sovereign determinations. The one who makes a promise and fulfills them. He did it through Isaac. He did it through or Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He says this is the sovereign act of God. And it is God's eternal purposes. Even in the case of Jacob and Esau, he says, Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. And that was before they were even born or did anything. God had determined the way that he would work, through whom he would fulfill his promise and the one he would reject. And it's all of grace and it's all of a mystery. And so Paul concludes there in chapter 9 in saying, Well, what if God willing to demonstrate in verse 22 his wrath and to make his power known endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? And he did so to make known the riches of of his glory on vessels upon mercy whom he prepared beforehand for glory, whom he called not only from among the Jews but also among the Gentiles. And then he implies an Old Testament passage to show that the Gentiles participating in these blessings of the new covenant of Israel's Messiah was anticipated even in the Old Testament. There they shall be called, he says at the verse of 26, sons of the living God. Why most of the nation is in fact displaying the wickedness that identifies them at the end of verse 29 with Sodom and Gomorrah, with unbelievers, those who are outside God's purposes. He then in verse chapter 10 says again, he speaks of a recognition of his desire for their salvation. Verse 1, their zeal for God, but their ignorance in this zeal. They have rejected God's righteousness. They have rejected their Messiah. They have rejected the new covenant and are seeking to establish their own righteousness before God. But in fact, 
as it has always been, the righteousness of God comes through what he accomplishes and embracing his work and his promises by faith. By faith. And so this is the faith, this is what they are preaching, that Christ has come, that he has died, that he has risen. And with the heart, somebody believes this. And with the mouth, someone confesses it. And in doing that alone, they experience and are brought into a righteous standing in Christ. They come to know the true meaning of the covenant. And they come to experience a right status with God as the people of God. But then again, he ends in verse chapter 10 and he says, But Israel hasn't heard this, has they? have they? Because they're rejecting it. And he says, well, no, surely they have heard it. Well, then they haven't understood it then, right? Because they're rejecting. He says, no, they have understood it. It's their hard heart. And so he says in Isaiah, or at the end of verse 21, he says, But as for Israel, all day long I have stretched out my hands to a disobedient and an obstinate people. So in light of Israel's rejection of the Messiah... Their false understanding of the covenant as though it were by works and by the reality that most of the nation, even throughout our history as they are to to this day and even at the time of Paul's writing, have rejected the truth of God and the promises of God, it would lead one then to this conclusion that Israel is no longer a part of the plan. That's it. Israel, you had your shot. You've had millennia or maybe about 1,500 years since the Mosaic Covenant of trying to work this out and you blew it. You didn't do it. And even as the greatest expression of that, you even crucified your own God and your own Messiah. You have rejected it all. Therefore, God surely has rejected his people for good. Is that what it means? Does it mean that Israel as an ethnic nation then is no longer a part of God's plan or his covenant promises? Does it mean that the ethnic nation of Israel and its history post-Pentecost have no bearing on God's eschatological purposes for the world? Is that what it means? One would conclude that. So Paul asks that directly in verse 11, or verse 1 of chapter 11. I say then, has God not rejected his, God has not rejected his people, has he? Has he put them off forever? And his answer is emphatically, no, no. May it never be the strongest way that it could be expressed in the Greek language. No, in fact, God's commitment to preserve Israel is still alive and well through the remnant. Through a remnant. And this is what he's going to address in verses 1 through 6. So let's just look at this. Again, we're going to look at this very broadly. But in verses, well, really 1 through 10... He says this, no, God has not rejected his people. And the first evidence he gives, he says, because I am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham of the tribe of Benjamin. In other words, God hasn't rejected his people by the mere fact that I, a Jew, am believing in the Messiah. And in fact, all of the apostles were Jews who had come to faith in the Messiah. And in fact, most of the church at the first preaching of the gospel was Jewish. And in fact, as the mission went out, Peter had a specific ministry to the Jews. Even Paul later on would have a ministry first to the Jews when he would go into a city, be rejected, and then go to the Gentiles. You know, he's saying, look, God is still working among the Jews. It doesn't mean that God has rejected his people That promise is still very much alive. And then he adds this in verse 2. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Whom he foreknew. Some of you are familiar with that word prognosco. It's often used in terms of reference to the elect. It's the foundation of God's predestined work in Romans 8. And it is a word that very specifically means this. A nation not whom he knew a people who were just 
happened to start following the God and that he would make a form into a nation. No, that was the eternal purpose of God. Whom he foreknew is to say that it was God's eternal purpose to enter into a covenant relation with the nation of Israel. And he has plans for them as such. So he said he's not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Israel's a part of his plan from before the foundation of the world. The reality of this relationship and God's faithfulness to this covenant has always been secured and continued again through the remnant. And that's what he says in verse 2. And following, he says this, Or do you not know what the Scripture says in the passage about Elijah, how he pleads with God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets, they have torn down your altars, and I alone am left, and they are seeking my life. But what is the divine response? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. In the same way then, there has also come to be at the present time a remnant according to God's gracious choice, God's election. In other words, the situation now with an apostate nation is no different than it's been throughout much of Israel's history. All of the time that God dealt and sent prophets to his people, all of the promises that God made through those prophets, we'll come back to that, were to a nation who largely, through much of her history, were rejecting the God who was giving those promises. As a matter of fact, many of those prophecies, promises that come through Isaiah, for example, and Ezekiel and Jeremiah as a nation he's preparing to send into exile, to put them out of the land because of their unfaithfulness. And so while the nation received the promises and warnings of a, as a whole, the true nature of those covenant blessings and the nature of the covenant itself were only known by this remnant the small number among, among the masses of the nation of Israel who would truly know their God, who would truly know God, and in that sense be identified as the true Israel. Now he made reference to this back in chapter 2. Let me just remind you. He says this, And he who is, verse 27, He who is physically uncircumcised, if he keeps the law, will he not judge you who through the letter of the law and circumcision are a transgressor of the law? For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that which is of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter, and his praise is not from men, but from God. In other words, he was confronting them again and saying, you call yourself a Jew, you think in that you're secure, and you're teachers of the law, and you're the wise, and you're, you're the wise people who instruct the, the ignorant, and so forth. He says, but that, that's not it. That's not the people of God. Truly what it means to be a Jew and truly what it means to know the God of the covenant and the covenant itself is to walk with God in obedience from the heart. To have a true circumcision of the heart. To know the meaning of the symbol of circumcision and the sign of circumcision. The others are outside of God's covenant purposes. And so this is always how it's been that God has preserved his covenant. Let me read to you one quote. The very existence of the remnant then is a witness to God's election and his faithfulness to his covenant. That people whom he foresaw he cannot reject and when, in whom he cannot give the whole, and when he cannot give the whole people his blessing, he takes care that there is always a remnant to receive it. Now in short, and I'm going to have to speed up here. Although the larger part of the nation rejected God in unbelief and were outside of his covenant blessings, and in fact were even under God's judgment, God's faithfulness to the nation as a whole was manifest in this remnant, this preserving of the remnant. And then he goes on in verses 11 through 14, and he's going to say, but this, and this is always a part of God's plan, even the way that God or Israel has rejected God. 
Look at verse 11. I say then, they did not stumble so as to fall, did they? May it never be. Again, he's going back to that question. If this is the case of Israel, if they have, in fact, are under judicial hardening, as he said in verse 10, let their eyes be darkened to see not and bend their backs forever. If this is the case, is God done with them? And again, says, may it never be. Look at the second part. But by their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make them jealous. And in short... The argument here of the Apostle Paul is to say this. Yes, God has hardened most of the nation in judgment, as he has in the past, but this is only to work out a larger purpose in relation to his people, but including his work among the Gentiles. Let's just consider that just very briefly. Now, if their transgression, he says in verse 12, speaking there of Israel, is riches for the world and their failure is riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their fulfillment be? And then he says in verse 13, but I'm speaking to you who are Gentiles inasmuch then as I am an apostle of the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry if somehow I might move to jealousy my fellow countrymen and save some of them. For if their rejection is reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead. So understand, far from rejecting the nation of Israel, Paul says, the very end of my ministry is in fact not the Gentiles. The end of my ministry is in fact the salvation of the Gentiles so that Israel will become jealous and be saved. That's actually the end of it. The Gentiles are fulfilling a purpose in this larger plan of God to ultimately bring about salvation to Israel. That's the argument. That he's making here. That's even what Paul is saying is at the end goal in a sense of his very ministry. To make his kinsmen jealous. One said this. He himself, a fellow worker of the conversion of Israel. Even though this be the indirect way through his work with the Gentiles. He looks forward to the time when not only a remnant but the whole of Israel as a people. When not only a remnant but the fullness will, be accept, will accept Christ in faith. For by his act of election, God has once for all coupled with his relation to the world with Israel, or coupled his relation to the world with Israel. Israel has been involved with the great turning points of God's history with mankind, and Israel will be included in the consummation. Her rejection is coupled with the reconciliation of the world, and her acceptance will be the harbinger of the final consummation. In other words, Israel remains integral to God's purposes for the world. That again is the argument. And then he says in verse 16, if the first piece of dough, the first fruit in his, uh, actually of the dough is holy, the lump is also, and if the root is holy, the branches are too. In other words, this is the case because God made a fundamental promise to a people. The first fruits or the, the, the first piece of dough and the root is here understood commonly to be the patriarchs and the branches of the nations and the people which consist of both the true and the false and so some of those branches are broken off he's going to say in just a bit those are the unbelieving and other branches remain those are the believing that's the remnant and then other branches are going to be added among the people of God that's the Gentiles but the gist in verse 16 is this the covenant and promise that God made to Abraham Isaac and Jacob were unconditional they rested in God's character and God's power and God's faithfulness, not in the accomplishment and the faithfulness of men. In other words, God made a promise and God would fulfill that promise, period. That is why 
as you read through the Old Testament, much of the rebellion of the nation of Israel, her apostasy and her rejection, never eliminated or annulled the promises and the faithfulness of God. It brought them into judgment. It brought them into exile. It brought them into punishment. But it never removed them as being the object of God's affection. As a matter of fact, when they were in exile, through the prophets, he says, my heart was turned over. His compassion was welled up within him because they are his people. And so that is the issue here. It's the same as now. There's a holy promise, a holy covenant, a holy relationship that God maintains and sustains. And then he says in verses 17 through 24 that this reality includes the work of God among the Gentiles, which I'll note in a bit has always been the purpose of God. But he's addressing here primarily, as in, as pastorally, he's addressing the, the pride of the Gentiles because now they're going to say, well, look, we're the ones who responded to the promise. We're the ones who really know the promise of the covenant. The Jews, look at them. They're rejected. They have rejected their Messiah. And in fact, this kind of attitude, not merely in the church of Rome, but throughout the history of the church, has infected God's people. Anti-Semitism, help me out. <laughs> Semitism, thank you. I put the T in the wrong place. Anti-Semitism, thank you. Anti-Semitism has plagued the world throughout much of its history after the coming of Christ. Even some of the reformers had vicious words towards the Jews and Luther, our beloved Luther himself, had vicious words towards the Jews. The Jews were, hey, they were the people who crucified their Messiah. And so this isn't just some offside thing. This kind of attitude could be very real among the people of God, the church. And so he's saying, look, Yes, yes, God has rejected his people in the whole, in the main. They are under judgment. They are hardened. Their eyes are darkened. They are under the discipline of God. Yes, that's true. Yes, the Gentiles, you now, the rest of the world who were outside of God's purposes, are now uh, have a place and a position of being the main objects of his working. He says, but don't be arrogant in verse 18. Don't be arrogant towards the branches. If you're arrogant, remember this, that it is not you who supports the root, but the root supports you. Yeah, branches were broken off. Yes, Israel was set aside. Yes, they are under judgment. That's true. But it is only so that God might bring you in for a temporary time and focus his saving purposes among the Gentiles for the time. But he warns and he says, look, all of the people of God have always been those who are identified by this. Not by whether being Jew or Gentile, but by those who respond in faith to God's promises and to his word. Always that's been the case. And so he says this, quite right, they were broken off for unbelief. You stand by your faith and do not be conceited, but fear. For if God did not spear the natural branches, he will not spear you either. Behold then the kindness and severity of God to those who fell severity, but to you God's kindness. If you continue in his kindness, otherwise you'll be cut off too. So don't take pride in being a Gentile in the same way the Jews took pride in being Jews and saying, look, the issue is whether you continue in faith, whether you respond in true faith and whether you continue in that faith. Those who respond in unbelief among the Gentiles will be cut off just as the Jews were as well. In short, one says this, The election of the patriarchs sanctifies Israel as a whole. Ethnic Israel is not cast off, but remains the elect people of God because of the promises 
made to the Father. They are here identified as a root and as an olive tree. Now, we don't have time. You can just jot it down. But Israel is referred to in the Old Testament as an olive tree. Jeremiah 11, 16 through 19. Hosea 14, 6 through 7. Again, for time's sake, we're not going to turn there. But what does he mean here? The olive tree here then is referring to those who are believing among Israel because this is what the Gentiles are grafted into, the believing among Israel, so that together they become the people of God, the true people of God, the true objects of God's saving intentions. But notice, and this is important, because this is really getting more to the point of all of this. Notice that he says this. They were grafted into. They have then become partakers with the believing Jews, with the remnant. They are partakers. Partakers. Now why is that important? It's important for this reason. Notice that he does not say the Gentiles or even the church and the Jew and Gentiles together fulfill all of God's promises to Israel. He doesn't say that. That's not what he says at all. As a matter of fact, he says that they share in these promises. They share in the promises to Israel, which the very point of the passage is Israel is not fully experiencing yet, but will at a future time. Now this is in fact always what God's purposes were. God always intended the salvation not only of those from among the Jews, but from all of the nations. That was at the very heart of his promise to Abraham. Through you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Through you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And the prophets anticipated a time in the future for Israel when all of the nations would come and worship together. Listen to Isaiah chapter 2. Now it will come about that in the last days the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains and will be raised above the hills and all the nations will stream to it and many peoples will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us concerning his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For the law will go forth from Zion and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem and he will judge between the nations and will render decisions for many peoples and they will hammer their swords into plowshares, their spears into pruning hooks and nation will not lift up sword against nation and never again will they learn war. And there are many other passages we could look at. The reality is that God always anticipated salvation that would extend from Israel, from the Jewish nation, those who were the believing among his people out into the world. They were to be a light to the nations ultimately. They were to be the ones through whom God's saving purposes for the world would come. As in fact, in Romans chapter 3, God said, when he talked about the work of Christ, he said, is God the God of Jews only? Is he not also the God of the Gentiles? God is the God of all humanity that bears His image and His saving purposes have always intended to extend to everyone, although in a very specific way. In a very specific way. So then this then is the specific way being detailed. And it is this, that although Israel had a privileged position and does, and is the nation who received these promises and these covenants, they are also the nation who has rejected God's purposes through much of their history and yet their rejection is a part of God's plan and in fact 
That plan included their rejection so that salvation would extend to the Gentiles. The Gentiles, in receiving the blessing of God and His salvation, would then be an object of jealousy to the Jews who would want to also enter into those promises and respond in faith. This is what he says is the mystery who is revealed. That is revealed. Look at verse 25. I do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, of this mystery. What is the mystery? This is the mystery. That a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. That's the mystery. That's the mystery. That the way things appear now are not the way things will be in the future. They're not the way things actually are. That's the idea. Right now it seems Israel is rejected. God has left his people. He has forsaken them. But he's saying, no, it's not that way at all. Right now, it seems like the Gentiles are the ones who received it. So they are now the eternal objects of God's affection. And the the Israel is a thing of the past. Whatever happens to them is inconsequential. He said, that's the way it seems. But that's not the way things actually are. Actually, God's working out a much, much larger plan here in His eternal purposes. It includes a partial hardening of Israel. It also includes a time when God's attention at the Gentiles will be brought to an end and He will turn again to Israel. And just notice here then that the New Testament does not meld national Israel into the church, nor does it meld or transfer promises made to Israel into a spiritual fulfillment of the church. He's not doing, specifically not doing that. He's specifically saying, yes, some of the believing Israel, the remnant through whom God is preserving his purposes, know those promises of their Messiah and the, the, the kingdom and the inauguration of the kingdom. And yes, Gentiles are now engrafted. They're sharing in that as well. They share in all of these promises. They share a common spiritual reality with Israel in, in the Messiah, in Christ, in the Savior of the world. That's true. But there's more to it. God still has promises yet to be fulfilled in this world. That's his very point that he's making. So that Gentiles would not be proud, although the church would not think that God is done with Israel as a nation, with a, with, as an ethnic nation. And again, he makes that even more explicit. Look at verse 26. What's going to happen after this fullness of the Gentiles comes in? He says, all Israel will be saved. All Israel will be saved. In other words... God's current focus on the Gentiles is temporary. It's temporary. It's not the end of the story. All Israel will, in fact, according to God's covenant and promises and purposes, be saved. This is to say that all of national unbelieving Israel will one day in the future become true and believing Israel at the time appointed by the sovereign election of God. That's what he says in verse 28. Right now, they're enemies to the, from the, uh, towards the gospel for your sake. They're persecuting you. They're of the synagogue of Satan. They are not the people of God. They are persecuting the people of God. But that doesn't mean that's how it really is in the future. That's not the end of the story. There's more to it. What is the more to it? The more to it is this mystery that know thou they're enemies of the gospel. From the standpoint of God's choice, his election, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. That's the real story. That's the real thing that God is doing. Now let me make a note here. Some in verse 26 say that Israel here then is referring to the church. Israel is the word for the church. The Jew and the Gentile together. However, this is extremely unlikely. That's a very difficult 
interpretation to take. He has just said in verse 25 that a partial hardening has happened to Israel. Clearly they're referring to ethnic Israel, whom is now hardened and acting, responding to God's promises in unbelief. In verse 28, he's referring to that group again and calling them enemies of the gospel. So to take Israel here as meaning the church, Jew and Gentile together, would be going against the whole grain of the distinction that he's been making for three chapters. And what he's saying, it would mean all of a sudden in this one verse to make a new meaning for Israel and then abandon that meaning before and after. That's not the point. The point is he's not saying all Israel who is really saved will be saved. That's not what he's saying at all. He's saying, no, in fact, there are promises to these people who are enemies of the gospel right now, who are branches broken off, who are rebellious people. There's still promises to them, and they're related to the gifts and the calling of God. That's his point. Now, just another really quick footnote. Does this contradict Paul's argument in chapter 9, 6, where he says they're not all descendants of Abraham? No, because there he's talking about salvation of the individual Israelite. He's talking about their unfaithfulness to God, their rejection of the covenant, their being outside of God's saving purposes. Here he's not looking at it from that angle. He's talking about God's intention to the covenant, God's faithfulness to the covenant, God's sovereign election and purposes to the nation. That's completely consistent with the entire argument that he's been making. So, what is he saying then? Well, one summarizes it well. The repentance of Israel will signal the arrival of the eschaton and the final resurrection. The eschaton, of course, being the, thing, the last times, the, the, the end of this age. God's faithfulness to Israel does not merely ensure the salvation of a remnant. A future and gathering of Israel will fulfill God's covenant with His people. So let me just give then, again, this is very broad, but let me give a quick summary of Paul's the main features here. One is this. God's covenant promises to Israel are preserved through the remnant. It's continuing. It's continuing. He still has his people among the Jews, although the nation of the whole has rejected him. Two, the Gentiles were always a part of God's saving purposes, and that includes the rejection of Israel's rejection of her Messiah. Number three, the mystery revealed, the mystery revealed in this case is that God has partially hardened Israel for a time and turned his attention to the Gentiles, but it's only a temporary attention on the Gentiles and rejection of Israel. He will again save his people in faithfulness to his covenant. And the Gentiles will participate in these promises not as a fulfillment of them in their totality, but as a sharer with believing Israel who is the root and the natural vine, the true olive tree. And that national Israel in the future will be brought to know their God and the reality of the promises and the spiritual realities of the new covenant. So again, I would say this. The mystery revealed in Ephesians of Jew and Gentile together in one body is not the equivocation of Israel equals the church or believing Gentiles equals spiritual Israel. It is this. That believing Israel, Jews, and believing Gentiles share equally in the promises of God in the Messiah in Christ. Same spiritual access, same spirit, same God, same salvation, same future, same hope. That they share in. But that's not the end of the story. That's part of the story. That's only the present part of the story. There's yet more in the future. And in this sense, in Galatians 6.16, then believing Jews are the Israel of God. Not referring to Gentiles there. 
He's referring to the true Jews, the true believing Jews in that case of Galatians 6 as opposed to the Judaizers, the false teachers who had come in and were trying to destroy the work of grace that Paul was establishing through the gospel among those people. So Gentiles with believing Jews share in all of the rich promises of the prophets of salvation, all of the rich benefits, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places with the believing Jews, all of those promises, they share in them. And that is the glory of the church. That is the glory of the body of Christ. That is the mystery revealed. That it is that Jew and Gentile would come on equal footing through the Messiah, through spiritual union with Him. That is the great message of the New Testament, the mystery revealed in Colossians 2 of being, or 1, of being in Christ. In Christ. That's the mystery. But there's more. That in Christ will eventually include God's fulfillment of His promises to the Old Testament ethnic Israel and they will be saved. They will be saved. Now, that's very broad, but just keeping that idea that there is a distinction there, that this is a very point of Romans well, 9-11, through 11, but particularly chapter 11. Come back to verse 9 of Revelation 3. So then it is a wrong way to approach this passage then to say that now, because Israel has rejected the promises, that all of a sudden God's reversing that promise made in Isaiah chapter 49 and other places, Isaiah chapter 16. So it's, it's wrong to say that God has reversed all of those. No, 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 no. That doesn't apply to Israel anymore. That doesn't apply to the nation of Israel anymore. Now that applies to the church and it applies to Gentiles and believing Jews. God's done with them. It doesn't mean that at all. That's what Paul just was arguing. That's not, so he can't be saying that. That's not the likely way to say this. That would be a very difficult position to hold. What is he saying? What is he saying then? Well, he's saying essentially, and we'll look at this a bit, that God's enemies now will in the future, this is what he's promising to a persecuting church, will recognize that they, in fact, this church, in fact, this believing Jew and Gentile, are the objects of God's saving purposes. That's what it means. You will be shown to be the objects of God's saving purposes. Right now, those who call themselves Jews, they're not really Jews. The promises of Isaiah weren't made to them. They're liars. They're a synagogue of Satan. They're outside of God's purposes. Those promises related to the Jews were to believing Jews. Gentiles are going to be a part of that. And in that very broad sense, here he's just simply saying this, that you who are persecuted, you who are the church, will in the future be shown to be the people of God. Now there's one other question here then. What does it mean to say then that they will come and bow down at your feet? What does he mean by that? Does it mean that then some Jews are going to be given from that synagogue of Satan and they are going to be given as believers and they're going to come and worship along with the Gentiles? Or does it mean that they are going to come and bow down before your feet as defeated enemies? Is, does, is that what it means? Well, I think the problem with understanding that is them coming along and worshiping and Gentiles taking a preeminent place is everything that's already just been said. It's not a fulfillment of those promises. It's not a reversal of those promises. It seems best here in the flow of what he's arguing is to say this, is that they are going to recognize that they, in fact, are the ones who are wrong and that you, the people of God, those who have accepted and followed Christ, are the people of God. They're going to come as defeated enemies. As defeated enemies. 
Those who are the enemies of Christ now will recognize that in fact, and they will come and be forced to recognize that the church, those who have accepted Christ, those who have believed in Him, are in fact the true people of God. I think that's the best way to take it. But let me step back from that and say this, that there's good arguments on both sides. Either way, there is a broader point that's being made, and that is this, that there is in a very real sense what Christ is promising to them and to us, that there will be a future vindication of His people. There will be a future vindication of His people. They who are rejected now by the world and hated by the world, those who are accused and maligned by the world, will in fact shown to be in the right. They will be shown to be the true people of God, the ones that were truly wise, the ones who had believed the truth and all the rest, in fact, had believed the lie. And this longing for vindication is seen throughout the book of Revelation. Matter of fact, he says in Chapter 6, verse 11, And there was given to each of them a white robe, and they were told they should rest for a while until the number of their fellow servants who were to be killed, even as they would, would be completed. And right before that, he says that in, in response to them saying this, They cried out with a loud voice and said, How long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? How long until you vindicate your name and you vindicate our faith before the world? How long? They long for that. This is the cry of God's people. We, for time's sake, won't go. Throughout the Old Testament and throughout the Psalms is to say, when will it be vindicated? This is not, they're not prayers for personal vindication. It is the cry of a persecuted believer of those who have truly trusted in the God of Israel, who have trusted in Christ and of receiving from the world persecution and hatred, and even from those who want to name the name of God. And the desire for vindication is not that they personally will be vindicated, but that they will be personally vindicated as a bearer of God's name so that God will be vindicated. God will be shown to be true. God will be shown to be the one who is in the right. He will be shown to be the one who is worthy of the worship. That is the desire of a believer's heart. Not that we would have some personal vindication for our own glory, but because we bear the name of Christ, the encouragement of the promise is to say, yes, one day these men who hate Christ will give Him glory, and I will be shown to be a part of that glory by grace. Rescued and redeemed by grace. And so that's what he goes to at the end. Look what he says. And what will he make them know? He'll make them know that I have loved you. I've loved you. I've loved you. This is the ultimate reason Christ is bringing to the Philadelphians. It will prove his love for them, his eternal electing love, his love unto salvation, and it's in his love unto their glorification with him. It's his love for them that he is ultimately wanting to put on display. And this reaches back as well into anticipation of the prophets. Listen to verse 20. Just listen to Isaiah 37. Now, O Lord, deliver us from His hand that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that You alone, Lord, are God. And know all of the nations know that they are, in fact, in that case, those who are the recipients of God's purposes and God's electing love. 
So the idea is this. It will be a complete reversal of the way things appear now to men. It will be a revelation of the way that things actually are. And it's going to be a powerfully and profound reversal. Let me just one verse and then we're going to come into the table. Remember what he said back in chapter 2 to the church of Thyatira. He says, He who overcomes, who keeps my deeds until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron, as the vessels of the potter are broken into pieces, and I have received authority from my Father. Remember that. That promise is given to those who are the overcomers. Borrowing the language that is applied to Christ himself now is applied to those who belong to Christ as they are going to be his instruments of judgment. He shall rule them with a rod of iron as vessels of the potter are broken pieces. In other words, those who are persecuted will be the victors. So let me just end this with this main point. Wherever somebody lands on many of the above issues, what is agreed by all is this. At the heart of this promise is this. The sovereign determination of God to display His people, those who have trusted Him, as the eternal objects of His love. That's, that's, that's going to be true of every, everybody who has trusted in Christ. He said this. At the end of chapter 8 of Romans 11. He says, All day long we're being put to death. We're considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through Him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And that love, that eternal love of God for His people, that eternal love of Christ for His people given to Him by the Father, that eternal love that was accomplished and manifest and made possible through His death and through His resurrection will be on eternal display when we stand before Him and He brings His kingdom and establishes it in the earth. And this is what He prayed for. I and them, in His high priestly prayer, John 17, that they may be perfected in unity so the world may know that You sent Me and loved them even as You have loved Me. That's a wonderful promise. And so, Christian, if any of you are suffering or any of you feel the shame or know what it's like to stand faithful to Christ when others have compromised, as the true church becomes more and more the scorn of the world and even of those who name the name of Christ, even among the church itself, the great encouragement that Christ gives here is to say, don't be dismayed by the way that things appear. Look to the end. Christ will be found true. His word will be found true. Those who are in him will be found to be the true objects of his love and of his saving purposes. They will enter into eternal joy while those who now seem to have the power and seem to have uh, the ability to shame God's people, they will be the ones put to shame. They will be the ones to regret. So hold faithful and stay true to the end. And that is, in fact, what the table reminds us of as we come to it. It's a reminder that God's saving purposes towards us are secure. If we belong to Him, He has fellowship with us now and is returning for us to bring us into His glorious kingdom. So take a few minutes to pray as the men come forward and then we will remember the table together.
you for this promise. Our Lord Jesus, thank you for fulfilling that eternal purpose of God. The eternal Son sharing forever the, the glory of God, that intimate fellowship for a time you took on flesh to come and to accomplish for us what we could never accomplish ourselves, And that is righteousness. That is to fulfill the righteousness of the law, both in your obedience and both in your bearing its penalty and punishment, and all for us and all in love. Help us to think much on this and to live faithfully for you, knowing that in the end, the blessing of faithfulness far outweighs any cost that we pay this side of heaven. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Amen.